Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. Hey, Brad. Hey, Grayson. All right. Today is Real Estate Diligence 101. All right. Let's get into it. Okay. So, obviously, you find a real estate property you like, you sign it, you, you wrap up the deal under LOI, so now you have exclusivity. Then you guys actually sign the purchase agreement, which is different than the way that we do it in the private equity world. But so weird, right? I'm not judging. Um, okay, so you sign the purchase agreement, and now you get into diligence, right? Correct. Yeah, we, we tend to back-end diligence just because that's when you start spending the money. Yeah, so diligence is expensive, so you leave it towards the end. And give us a rough idea. How long does it take you? I know you've been doing a lot of mobile home parks recently. How long does it take you to kind of go through the entire diligence process? It's actually pretty common across uh, asset classes, but you know, generally most sellers like to see 30 days due diligence. You can sometimes get 40, 45, sometimes 60 rarely, but that's generally the, the, the time frame. And then you have another, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 days to close the deal and, and get the debt in place. Okay. Gotcha. So this, so what we're going to be talking about on today's show is the 30 to 60 day period after you sign the purchase agreement before you kind of get into the official closing docs, um, this what's we're going to talk about what happens during that period. Correct. All right, let's let's kick it off. So it sounds to me like you, maybe you start with the title. Is that right? Like make sure like the, this they they actually own what they say they own. Is what do you do there? Yeah, title is actually a weird concept if you if you don't deal with real estate very often. Usually, most people just you know they buy their house and that's the extent of it. But title is is essentially a track of ownership. Right, it's actually recorded at the county level usually of who owns this property, and that goes back decades. And is this like a is this a check the box thing? I mean, is it is there ever really an issue with the title? Yeah, actually, there really? are. It's it's very rare. I've actually only come across it three times out of billions of dollars of deals across my both my institutional and my principal uh, experience in real estate. You said billions. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that, Baller. well, like it wasn't my money at that time. <laughs> Most of the time, title issues are just kind of things you have to clean up. It's rarely a deal killer, but every once in a while, something pops up that the seller didn't tell you about. And you're like, well, this is not good. This is uh, some random lien or cloud on title that is going to blow up the deal. Gotcha. So it's, it's, if there is an issue with the title, it's not that they actually don't own the property like they think they do. It's just that there's a lien or there's something else going on with it. Well, I've seen one where they actually didn't own the property technically. <laughs> How does that happen? Well, it was, uh, it was passed down through a trust or somebody uh, actually probate, right? Uh, grandpa passed away. His kids took over the deal, took over the property. Okay. Then they tried to pass it on to their heirs and somebody missed something during one of those transactions and let it go through, even though they didn't title it correctly. Okay. And so it was in some random trust name that they didn't actually have control of. Okay. So in that case, you can, you can clean it up. It just takes some work. It took, it took a year and a half. <laughs> oh, they had to bummer. go to court and oh, they had man. to go through the, the probate process again. Okay. So yeah, it, it does happen. Uh, you know, it's rare and, and that's why the title insurance is kind of a racket, right? Because first American Chicago title, while I love our, our agents, of course. Uh, it, wonderful people. Wonderful people. They really get this sweet deal. They get they get to collect insurance on something that almost never happens, right? It's They're taking a meaningful chunk of the deal at closing, and you almost never have a problem. Okay, got you. So even though you, even though you check the title and it checks out, you still buy title insurance to make sure you didn't miss something? Correct. You're kind of silly not to buy title insurance because, you know, the 
the disaster scenario is so bad <laughs> that you just you just gave somebody you know twenty million dollars to buy this thing and technically you don't own it. Oh my god! You just have to spend the the five ten thousand dollars whatever that would have cost. Uh, okay, I want to get into the title insurance. Yeah, game. it's a good racket. Okay, so the, so basically the title. Okay, so make sure they actually own it, and then talk about liens, easements. What are some other things that might show up on the title search? The liens, just mortgages, so debt. Sometimes you'll get some random lien that they didn't know about that uh, they they put a seller second which is just seller financing that a major bank wouldn't have recorded properly. Sometimes that pops up. Those are generally pretty easy to take care of. Sometimes you just need to get somebody's authorization that, hey, no, that was paid off you know, 30 years ago. Okay, gotcha. And so- then easements are if you have, you have a neighboring property that's behind your asset and there's a, a road that comes through your property, you know, maybe there was an easement that was granted to that neighbor so they could get to their house or their apartment complex or there's underground easements for utility companies. And is this, like again, that. this is just, you just want to be aware of them? Are these deal killers? Like, what, what are you looking at here? They're rarely deal killers. Easements, though, it, with, with big commercial properties are more important, right? You you want to make sure you're not uh, obligated to some crazy, hey, look, you, you have to have all these people come on your property at any given time because the prior owner took 50 grand for an easement. They're rarely deal killers, but yeah, you want to know about them. Interesting. Okay, cool. So this, okay, so you do the title search, you make sure that that's clean, the liens, the easements, and now you get into what, some sort of zoning analysis. Talk about that. Yeah, zoning is is just making sure that the property is legal uh, and conforming to the zoning of that that county or that city, uh, or if it's grandfathered in, so it would be then legal non-conforming, which just means that when it was built, it was legal, then they changed the code. And it's no longer legal, but it's grandfathered. So you want to know what restrictions you have. If you have a building and there's some damage to it and it's grandfathered in, you want to make sure you know the code because they might say that, hey, look, you have to adhere because you're going to rebuild that that part of the, the building. You now have to adhere to the new code. So if it's really restrictive code, you want to make sure you kind of know the risks there if uh, if you do have some damage due to weather or or what have you. And where where are you actually doing? I should have asked this about the title search too. Where the, between title and zoning and, and and sort of building permits and things like that, where are you actually doing that work? Are you going down to the city or the county office for title? God no, thank thankfully because you know that stuff's on like microfish from oh, you know, 100 years ago. But First American, Chicago Title, any of these larger firms, this system nailed because. As we talked about, it's such a racket. They okay. got a lot of money to spend. So the people you pay money for the title insurance to will do the title search. They're going to do, yeah. They will do that on spec. Okay. On spec, they will go out and do the research and give you what's called preliminary title. That gives you a sense of okay, well, I see the liens, I see all of the easements, and so you can do analysis. Generally, you get your attorney involved and you have them take a look at it too, because you can clean up. They can you know start working on that right away, as opposed to just before closing, which would could blow up a deal. Okay. So that happens, you know, remotely just from, from the computer, but the, the building permits you that, uh, you actually need to generally, you want to go down to the, the building department at the city level. And most, most people don't do this. A lot of sponsors do not do this at the smaller end of the spectrum. Of course, when you're dealing with hundreds of millions, somebody's doing this, but at the smaller end of the you know, the uh, real estate world, a lot of people just skip this step because it's, it's kind of hard work. You got to go track these documents down, go meet with people. And you pull the file and you want to do that because you want to see what has actually been happening at this property from a construction standpoint. Yeah. Okay. But you, but I guess you wouldn't be able to see something they didn't pull a permit for, but they should have, right? Is that totally, how do you, how do you kind of get over that issue? Well, you, you don't, 
you, <laughs> you don't. Fingers crossed. You fingers crossed <laughs> that one a little bit. I mean, generally, if you're doing big enough work to a property, right, you're, you're rolling the dice by not filing a permit, but sure, it happens all the time. But if you're using really expensive contractors, so you're doing something like facade work on a big structure or you're dealing with the foundation, generally that's not Bob's foundation contractor, right? You, you got to get a legit engineering sure. firm yeah, yeah. Uh, that's got a you know, reputation and a lot to lose, and they're they're going to pull the permit. That's a good point. Usually usually folks who are not pulling permits are residential homeowners that are doing like trellises in their backyard or something like that, not these big properties. Totally. Okay, so you, okay, so you got the title. You, you, you zone. You make sure you, it's zoned correctly. Pull the building permits to figure what's going on. And I imagine now there's a you survey the land. Talk about the survey portion of this. Yeah, so the survey is really just a, a visual depiction of what's on title because I, I don't know why we haven't changed this yet. Just nationwide, we have this archaic system of defining what uh, what real estate is owned by something that's called meets and bounds description which is super annoying, right? It'd be nice if it was just like the address and maybe, what are, you're an engineer, what, what what is it called? The, the logistical um, degrees, what is that called? When you say, hey, uh, uh, latitude and longitude. Latitude and longitude, I yeah. think, space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you'd think you'd be able to define Something a super property, technical. But like it's that. not like, what, is, what are the meets and greet? I mean, is it like? Meets and bounds is like something, is you it know, like it's like. Over yonder by the river. <laughs> you know? It's almost that bad. A left at the barley stone. <laughs> Old right. Johnson's Mill Road. Yeah, yeah. Run through it's this. almost that bad. It's like the north, south, east, west corner of this street. Walk twenty yards this way, right? It's just annoying. Interesting. Yeah, and and so you got to get a surveyor, you know, because I'm not going to try to map that out, figure that out. So you get a surveyor to take what's on title, and then he actually he or she maps that out. You know, these are the people that you see. In the middle of the road, the tripod guy. Yeah, the tripod. I, I've guy. almost hit like thirty of those yeah. people when I'm driving. My, my entire car. life, until I got into real estate, I was like, "What are these crazy people doing out in the middle of the street?" It's very dangerous, it seems like, with this telescope-looking thing. Yeah, but those are surveyors. Okay. They are they're actually doing measurements, and so they actually map. Okay, so they map out the property, so you so you know exactly where the property lines are, essentially. Yeah. So if you're doing a a smaller deal, right? Because these aren't you know these aren't cheap. Uh, you you probably just get what's called a boundary survey where you're just literally where is the extent where's the property line on on all four sides right that's a that's just the bare minimum what a lot of lenders are going to require and what you just as a property owner would like to know but if you're doing a larger deal and you got a, a legit loan and a legit bank behind you you're going to need what's called an ulta survey which just means it's a it's per the Alta standards that surveyors came together and came up with this requirement list. And it has way more descriptions about what's on that property, draws in a lot of the infrastructure, okay. Uh, okay. buildings, et cetera. But okay, so the, what does the surveyor actually give you? Like, what's their output? Is it, a, is it a map? Is it like a physical map that they hand you with the, like, superimposed on the buildings that are on the property? It is, and, and they're like, they look like architectural drawings, okay. right? They are pretty technical and would be huge if they gave you the physical copy. I've only gotten a few physical copies from really older deals, but every deal we work on now is just off of PDF. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So, and you do the survey to make sure you know what you're buying, where the property lines are, make sure that the buildings that you think are on that property are actually on that property, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is actually, this is a point of contention quite often in due diligence because lots of times there'll be something that's actually what's called encroaching across the neighboring property line that uh, the current oh, owner, the seller didn't even know about. That's scary. Yeah. So 
Sometimes that's that's something you can go back to the seller and get a credit for, right? Reduction of the purchase price. Other times that could kill a deal, right? Interesting. So like you potentially, like let's say you're buying a mobile home park, maybe a couple of your or, or sites or lots are actually on a neighboring property. Is that possible? Yeah, that actually happens all the time. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and so there we generally just don't count those homes in the calculation. You just get them for free. You just get those for free, those, those pads, right? Because we don't own the homes, we own the pads. In mobile home park land. But you, you would discount those, right? Because someday the property owner would be like, hey, you're on my land. you got to move these homes. They're and you not don't, usable. You don't necessarily go to that property owner and be like, hey, FYI, two of my pads are on your property. <laughs> you keep that <laughs> that's, quiet. Well, that's like the kid you know, in uh, in fifth grade. Who, you're like, wait a minute. You got this marked correct, and I got it marked wrong. You, you don't go tell the teacher. I mean, <laughs> like, um, well, maybe it will work out next time for you. That's not cool. Huh? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, okay, so okay, so survey... And next, by the way, I'm for our listeners out there, I, Brad and I did actually go through this ahead of time, so I'm just going through the list he gave me. So Why so, are you telling all the secrets? <laughs> we do prepare. Um, now, okay, so on my list, I have, now you do an environmental analysis or environmental assessment. What's involved with that? That's called a phase one report, Okay, which is just the random name for it. And what they're doing is they're generally are looking at a couple things. They want to make sure that this property wasn't built on top of a toxic waste dump. Uh-huh. That would be bad. That would be bad. They want to make sure that there wasn't a bunch of underground storage tanks filled with gasoline on this property, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why it's tough to buy former gas stations. Mm-hmm. Also bad. Yeah, or laundromats, surprisingly. It causes all kinds of problems. Like as a detergent? Yeah, all the, the random chemicals they use to clean your, your shirts. You're telling me the Tide that I use to clean my shirts is toxic? Uh, well, that's the the Maybe. organic <laughs> Tide. You guys buy that expensive stuff. Maybe so. it used to be. Yeah. So, yeah, they're going to look at all the historical records. Like We, we actually had one where uh, we didn't realize this. We were buying a property that was next to a, uh, a former uh, nuclear planning facility and there was nuclear waste all over the this site Are you serious? right next to our property what do you do well i thought and when i heard that i, it's I was over. like it's You're over like, so they're they, like turns out it's not that bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's just a, you know nuclear waste some nuclear deal. waste yeah no so they they do an analysis of like the groundwater yeah. right and so we were higher than that property and so all the groundwater ran away oh, wow. from from our asset so we we still Thank God. Did the deal, and we still own that one. Interesting. So, and it, and of just, course, the dogs have like four <laughs> eyes, and yeah, but the dogs but shouldn't be fine. playing around in neighbor's property. Um, wait, so and just who requires the phase one environmental? Is that the lender will require that? The insurance company? Oh Every, no, no, everybody is requires. That, is that like even, a legal requirement? Well, it's a get out of jail free card requirement. Okay. So if you buy a deal and you got a clean phase one report, the mm-hmm. environmental engineer said, "Hey, yep, yep, all good." Go ahead and buy it. And you buy the deal. And then five years later, it turns out that, nope, there was toxic waste underneath the property. And it infected the town's water system. And you have now made 10,000 people sick. Instead of getting sued and going to jail, you say, well, here's my clean phase one from a licensed engineer that is backed by what's called the super fund that the government and the EPA put in place, I don't know, decades ago. And that absolves you oh, from liability and a lot of costs. So who bears the cost of that? The government? The super fund. Not even the environmental guy that messed up on the phase one? Well, I'm sure his insurance goes through the roof, and <laughs> he may or may not have a job anymore. But Interesting. Okay, so phase one. Okay, so got it. That's important to do. That's very important. And then if the phase one comes back dirty, right? No pun intended. Uh, then you can do a phase two, which the phase one is mostly looking at historical documents, satellite images, Making like okay, was there a new? Was there a new? Yeah, what what was on this property before it, you know it was an apartment building? 
Phase two is where they the actually phase test two. It. Yeah, they're drilling. Okay, they're doing core samplings, and yeah. they're actually testing the soil. So other than okay, so other than soil and groundwater, I mean, is that essentially it? Soil and groundwater. That's oil what they're testing in the. You see this more in the northeast, where you'll have they use a lot of heating oil up there, so they'll have heating oil tanks on on properties. Got it. Generally, you see a lot of those spills. It's not like it affects the groundwater, but they want to just go through the records to make sure it was treated properly and cleaned up properly. Gosh, that's so crazy. Because a lot of times you'll sign a purchase agreement on a piece of property. You have no idea what the heck's underneath the, the dirt, huh? Yeah. And here's a little little tip to save you some money. Cause not that these are crazy expensive. You yeah. know, they, hit they, us. Hit us with a tip. They're like two to, I don't know, $5,000 for two, $3 million property. They get more expensive, obviously, the higher you go. But a quick tip, you can have these guys just do a desktop review especially if they're not located in the state that you're trying to you know, do this deal. You can save a lot of money. Just have them do a desktop review first. Generally speaking, that's going to be 90% of it, if not 95% of their analysis before they have to physically fly out, drive out to the property, spend all day really just looking around, right? If they're not drilling anything, they're really just looking around, talking to people. So did did you see a nuclear planning facility right here? Did, <laughs> did you? Have you been dumping anything in the last five years? Yeah. Literally, this is what they do. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, you get the desktop review. It ends up costing like, I don't know, 25 or 35%. And then you can know like right away without wasting a lot more money on other due diligence items. He was like, oh yeah, this thing is, this thing's toxic. Don't, stay away. Gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you guys are. It's you're on the hook for sort of what your neighbors have done over the years. Oh, it's so. the scariest thing. Yeah, you know, that's why you know they created the super fund uh, because it was preventing transactions. Uh, interesting. Oh God, God bless America. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the appraisals. The appraisals another one on the list. To talk about the appraisal makes sense to me. Someone's going to go out and value the property. Who who requires this? How much is it? Does this ever kill deals? What what's pff, kills deals all the time? Really? I thought they just tell you it's worth whatever you're going to pay for it. No. True. <laughs> Most of the time, it is shocking how <laughs> it comes yeah. out right. And it's the... like plus or minus 1%, whatever you have it under contract for. It's shocking. Yeah. So now the appraisal can kill deals. It's certainly, you know, I've had appraisals come in low and you're like, what are you talking about? You've missed, you've missed five different comps that were all higher than this purchase. And comps just a competitive transaction that they would use to pinpoint what the value is. But the funny thing is about the appraisals is that you actually, if they kind of think they're going to come in low, they sometimes they'll they'll just reach out to you and ask for the data that you're using or the model that you're using, which is super weird because they're supposed to be objective third party. But so you know they're trying to do is, a job. And it is odd, right? It's, like, it's a very weird thing. It's to me, it's a cover your own ass for the lenders. The lender wants this. right? The lender wants it just because this third party appraiser has no technical vested interest. Although if you do a ton of appraisals for a buyer, right, this is gets gets into the yeah. Uh, you don't want to be the Arthur Anderson problem. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy that's known in the market for like, oh, that guy's appraisals are always coming low. And like, all right, I'm not going to use him. Yeah, you, you just kind of... And, and some banks have regulations where they have to pick the appraiser and it's got, got to go some, through some random process. But essentially the bank's saying, hey, we want to loan up to 70% of the value of this property. So we need to know what the value actually is, not just what you're going to pay for it. Yeah, right? and okay. I'm not saying that the, the appraisals are worthless. I mean, they do a lot of work on this stuff uh, and there is some good data in there. But no offense to appraisers, but they are not wonderful ones, people. They're wonderful people. They're not the ones who are in the market trying to value deals that are tied to a, a cost of capital, a target return, as say the professional investors are, who I would argue have a better sense of what is actually market. 
Yeah, it's it's so interesting, right? Because you you know you think about a piece, it's a piece of dirt with some a structure on it. It's it's only worth what someone's going to pay for it, right? And but depending on what return they want to get, it's there's not like an absolute number for that thing. Yeah, right? and they have some kind of I forget what the actual system is, but they're supposed to look at three different values. One is like the you know doing a discounted cash flow analysis. Okay, so and they, then okay, there is a, do all that stuff. There's a replacement cost value that they come up with right right a highest and best use valuation i think is one of them right oh, interesting this, okay. this property should be a you know a high rise okay so they, they get at value differently in different ways and yeah okay that makes sense okay so the appraisal but it's always the purchase price you're right <laughs> how much is the appraisal how much does that cost Ooh, that one's varies widely but it can be you know anywhere from a few thousand dollars to thirty thousand dollars depending on the size of the deal wow okay um, okay. So then, you know, I remember you and I were talking about this at, at this point, you kind of, a lot of this stuff feels like you're using third parties, you're checking the boxes, you're making sure that you're not walking into something scary, but you're also doing in parallel with all this, you're doing deeper market research on the area, right? So t- talk about some of the things you're doing to make sure that you're actually, you're getting a, a reasonable value for this property. And then all the assumptions you made in your model are correct. What are you doing here? Yeah, so presumably if you're making an offer and you're going through the hassle of tying something up and doing a purchase contract, you like the market. So you, you're going to have a pretty good sense of the market going into due diligence. But so due diligence is really more about verifying what you already thought about the market. And so you're doing a, a market rent survey, right? You're going to the competing properties okay. and figuring out what other tenants are paying. You're looking at job growth, population growth, who are the major employers in that town? Has it that market been sliding? Has it been you know going the right direction? You're just going to get in the weeds. You're going to talk to the, the economic development division of that town, get their data. Do you have any big employers that are moving into town? You know, all that good stuff. And do you, do you ever find stuff in this analysis that kills the deal or makes you want to retrade? Is that common or, or is this really more, again, just kind of checking the box type stuff, make sure you didn't miss anything big? No, occasionally you do find something that is like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't realize that. Like, like the we, town's major employer is leaving next year. Yeah. Yeah. We've had stuff like that happen where that, oh, hey, by talking to tenants or talking to the city officials, you, you realize that, oh, wait a minute. They've already announced that they're slashing 10% and this is the biggest employer in this area. Right. So yeah, that stuff does come out. You know, it's rare. Uh, a lot of this stuff is pretty rare, but if you miss it, it can kill you. So you have to check all the boxes, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Especially the environmental stuff that can literally kill you. Yeah, really? Uh, so, okay. <laughs> so let's, okay. So now you also are doing a property condition report. Okay. It makes, this makes sense to me. It's like, let's evaluate the actual structure I'm buying. What happens here? The property condition report is generally done by a physical engineer. Somebody has, you know, some expertise in, in looking at buildings and systems. And this varies across the board by asset class, of course. A guy that's going to look at a, a retail building or industrial building may not know everything about a, a office skyscraper, right? Because they just require different systems. But they're going to look at just about everything you can think of. And these can get quite expensive, especially for larger properties, because they're going to use teams of people. They're more like a contractor, and they're going to get a bunch of different engineers to evaluate every system and uh, structural aspect of the building, pretty much. So these people are going to uh, come up with, ultimately, a one-page, the two-page summary of the capital expenditures that are going to need to happen over the next five to 10 years at time. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so their output is like, hey, here's how much it's going to cost you over the next five or 10 years to to keep this building shape. Yeah, their kind of goal is to uncover the deferred maintenance or the capital stuff that needs to happen that hasn't already happened. And then how do you think about whether you go back to the seller on price or not, depending on how, depending on how this report comes out? Oh, this is actually a pretty common you know, tactic. You, you, you pull that piece of paper outside of the, the property condition report 
And then you add all your other items that might have popped up that aren't related to the physical aspect of the property, right? Maybe it's a financial analysis that you found that we'll get into in a minute. But so you use the physical property condition report capital plan, and then you take that and say, hey, look, or you didn't tell us that you had uh, you have a crumbling facade or that you need foundation work mm-hmm. or that the, the you don't plumbing, have running water. Yeah. You didn't tell us any of this stuff. And so here's a, a third party that has no vested interest in this deal, has identified this. We're going to need something off the purchase contract to compensate us for this. And you never get it one for one. I've literally never got one for one because you're also spending this money later in time. So there's a time value of money aspect of it. Interesting. But it's but this is common in real estate to go back to the seller on price. Well, not always in like, you know, mom and pop deals. It's a little, we do it, but sometimes pop just digs in, right? And says, no, I'm selling this for 2 million or I'm not selling it yeah. or 10 million or whatever the yeah. number is. People get kind of wedded to that original number. Yeah. And, and it can happen to big deals. I've seen just plenty of guys running a hundred million dollar deals that just get emotional about it too. People are more open to it in the, I, I would say the professional world, just because this, these buildings require a lot of capital and this is an objective third party telling them that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I could, I can imagine those conversations could be fun. And, and how much does the property condition report roughly, how much does that cost to have the engineer go do that? For a smaller deal, you know, a million dollar deal, three grand. But for big skyscraper, you know, you can spend twenty to fifty, hundred thousand dollars if you're looking at everything mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and getting the weeds, yeah. Okay. And so, if, okay, so you do the property condition report. And now let's talk about financial due diligence. Where you, you know, obviously, you want to make sure that they're collecting the amount of money that they say they're collecting each month. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, the financial due diligence is going to vary with the sophistication of the seller, of course, right? It's going to go from shoebox receipts to audited financial statements, which are obviously preferable. But yeah, you're going to dig into the numbers, right? You're not just going to accept what the broker when you bought the deal or what the seller initially told you uh, were the numbers, right? You want to see historical, you want to see actual bank statements, you want to see tax returns, and you're, you're basically recreating the P&L from yeah. all of these documents and yeah. what you think the financials should have been reported based on the actual data. Yeah. And it, we, so in the private equity world, we usually call this quality of earnings. In, this, in our world, this kills deals all the time, right? So someone said, hey, we really, you know, our profit's X, and it turns out their profit's actually not X. It's it's something less than that. And so now you got to go back to them and have that conversation. How, how often is this happening in your world in real estate where when you do this financial due diligence, your the net operating income is substantially different than what you thought it was? This is less common. Okay. Because it's just, there's not as many accounting tricks, right, that can happen here. Usually, if you know the rent roll, right, how many occupied units there are, how many tenants there are, and you have a reasonably accurate profit and loss statement, there's not a lot of goodwill and crazy acquisition, mergers and acquisitions, or, or different accounting treatments of revenue. Yeah, it's right? just cleaner. It's just cleaner. You have, It's a big deal. Yeah, you'll get accrual counting and cash counting, but you ask for both sets of books. What about, I mean, do, do you often, ha- in smaller deals like that we, we come across, do you often have the owners running a bunch of their personal expenses through the business and you have to back those out and you have to kind of a hundred percent of the time. Does, yeah. that, does that get, does that become hairy or is that pretty clean for you guys? No, we love seeing that actually. Cause usually when that happens, they didn't, they didn't pull it out of the numbers up front. Oh really? 
not all the time. Sometimes they're savvy enough to do that. But lots of times they'll just, you know, they print out their profit and loss statement, which had, oh, look, they were paying themselves a $100,000 supervisory fee. Or their wife's like, you know, $900 a month BMW payment or something. Oh, yeah. Everybody's through. cars in there. You're like, why Why does the, this property need eight cars? Yeah. Or the common one is healthcare and uh, cell phone plans for everybody. Yeah. They're like extended family. And this, you <laughs> see this all the time because lots of times if somebody's held a property for 20, 25 years, they're through their depreciation schedule and there's no debt on the property. So they are unsheltered from the tax man. Sure. Right? So they want to try to make that income look very small. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's yep. that's common. Interesting. Well, I'm jealous that you guys don't, this is not often not a point of, of, of contention because it, in private equity it typically is, at least in the smaller deals. Are most of your deals gap accounting? Uh, they're mixed cash accrual gap people 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 some people don't even have accounts they just kind of do it in quickbooks on their own so at yeah. least in the smaller deals um all right and, but what blows it up usually is it because they're recognizing revenue in a weird way or yeah, uh, yeah that can be it you know maybe there's some special accounting treatments for deferred revenue or for recurring revenue or for you know prepaid revenue that they're just not accounting for correctly so their revenue changes or they're you know, something as simple as like, hey, they were paying themselves a $200,000 a year salary, and so they think they're going to just back that out, but then someone else is going to have to come in and run the business it, yeah. and pay, get paid two hundred grand. so it's, you really shouldn't back that out, so stuff like that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, in real estate, the, the probably the biggest gotcha is uh, people capitalizing stuff that should be expensed. Right, mm-hmm. if they if something is uh, recurring, but they're calling it a one time capital item that rarely doesn't happen, but you go back, you see, oh, well, this happens all the time. Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest, you know, gotcha we find. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, and then so the least review. That's the that's the final one on our on our list here. Talk about the least review. What is this? The least review. Well, this is pretty easy on the residential side and very hard on the large commercial. Uh, building side, right? If you if you have a skyscraper filled with 100 different tenants with varying lease expirations and a bunch of different random terms because they're all custom negotiations, this is a pain in the yeah, ass. Yeah, this seems terrible. Yeah, this is a, this sucks. And I've had to do that uh, as an analyst, right? When I started my career, and it's not fun. Uh, And you literally are going to, you read every single lease and sort of highlight the major terms. Yeah. On smaller deals. I mean, if, if it's a huge skyscraper and there are hundreds of tenants or a portfolio, you just do the big ones. Yeah. You do the big ones. You do a large, the larger percentage ones. And lots of times you'll bring in a third party. That's going to do what's called lease abstracts Mm. where you just throw money at the problem and people comb through them and they create a schedule for you. Hmm. And when I worked at East Delta Secured, which is you know investment bank for real estate, we we would hire crews in India, and they they would just crank these things out wow. all the time. That's crazy. Yeah. And then and then okay, that makes sense because it. And again, you kind of compare what's in the leases to what you sort of presumed in your original model, where it's like, hey, we're going to continue to get this amount of dollars from this amount of the, these tenants over the next X amount of years. You just want to make sure that's true. Right? Yeah, you got to make assumptions on who's going to re- renew, yeah. right? Which is the biggest one. Right, because if if people are not renewing, then you're spending a lot of money on improving the space. You got to like rip out all the carpet and all the improvements because a new, brand new company is coming in there and they want a different build out. You got to pay commissions all over again. So that's probably the biggest assumption in an office is just what's the renewal percentage. Mm, yeah. Okay. So 
All right, let's wrap this one up. So anything, so in terms of, you, you're probably also visiting the property, you know, you're coordinating third parties. I'm I should assuming. hope you're busy. Yeah, you, I mean, you're literally flying out and walking the property probably a few times during this process. And we've got drones now, which actually makes oh, it a little cool. easier. Yeah. yeah, okay, there you go. We we use drones, Do which you is really? great. Yeah, because ah. sometimes you don't want to fly out to the property unless you've kind of seen at least a, a video of oh, it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay, you could put it to music and then just kind of like watch it. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, they're riveting. <laughs> yeah, drones flying through mobile home parks i could just see your tenants like looking up at the drone like flipping you the bird <laughs> it's the government yeah well they do drones with office buildings too it's you can actually see the uh the facade now and problems with it oh, cool okay so this so th- all of this we talked about you try you get this done in 45 to 60 days or 30 to 60 days is that right yeah i mean it's sometimes like you lot. get extensions but yeah it's it's usually go time i mean you know you know the drill right it's like when you get a deal tied up you you think you're going to close it it's all hands on deck yeah yeah you don't see the family for for 35 40 days <laughs> you're just sleeping in the office growing a beard yeah uh all right cool man well i feel like i learned a lot about uh, how to do diligence on a, on a real estate yeah, you property. ready to buy a 20 million dollar deal let's go out and find one all right cool thanks for listening to the alternative investor since you made it this far you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.